the mistake that salespeople make classically is they play very heavily into competence. They say, if I can just prove that I'm the most competent, that I have the best solution, that I will win. And that is a mistake because what all the social science shows is that decisions about intention and warmth are primary. They happen first and they, all, they also carry more weight. They could, so, and so applied to this situation, what we're trying to say is if the customer can tell that you're doing it for yourself and you're not doing it for them, then suddenly they, you, you've lost their trust. This is Outside Sales Talk, the best podcast for outside salespeople. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and we're here to chat with the world's top sales experts so that you can get their best sales tactics to level up your game. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, we're going to talk about how to close more sales with the perfect close. And uh, I've got James Muir with us here. Welcome to uh, welcome to Outside Sales Talk, James. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah. So James is uh, the CEO of Best Practice International. He has 30 years of sales experience, and uh, he has sold to and spoken to the largest names in tech and healthcare. He's also the best-selling author of The Perfect Close, which is the number one book on closing sales. So really excited to hear what you have to say to, uh, to us today about closing sales. James, yeah, I'm excited to be on. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, so in your book, you, you mentioned that there are many different definitions to the question, what is closing? But uh, why don't we kick off with uh, what's your definition of closing? Well, I don't actually have my own definition. I borrowed mine from Neil Rackham. But when you, when you look at this, you read all these books, right? And they all have this definition of closing and they kind of span this range, right? On the one side, you've got this idea that there's a magic thing that you can say that will cause people to be overcome with persuasion and buy your stuff, right? And so those are the ones that usually believe in the, the alternate choice closer, all these different fancy closes, right? So that, that, that's kind of the all or nothing, you know, magic phrase, definition. And then on the other side, there's this definition that's kind of like, well, closing is everything in the sale all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end. Right. You know, and, and, and so, and by the way, I believe that, I believe that, but that is such a broad definition. It's not useful, right? It's essentially defining closing, redefining closing as all of selling. Right. right? I was going to say that's kind of the definition (laughs) of the job, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, so that's not useful because if what we're trying to do is think about this one stage, this one stage where we're getting a commitment, it's not a very useful definition for that purpose. And so Neil Rackham, and if your audience doesn't know who Neil Rackham is, he, uh, I would call him the patron saint of scientific selling because uh, in the 80s, late 80s, uh, early 90s, he conducted the largest um, face-to-face sales study ever conducted, involved over 35,000 face-to-face sales interactions. And we learned a ton of stuff about selling uh, from that. And he's got a lot of that, uh, of what he learned, written in a book called Spin Selling, S-P-I-N. That's an acronym, by the way. It's not like spin doctoring type of uh, spin, but um, he probably would have renamed it today instead of back then. But anyway, and in that definition, he just defined closing as anything that puts a customer in a situation where they have to make a commitment. That's it, right? And so that's the definition that I use is say closing is really any situation where we put the client in a, you know, where, where we're going to ask them for a commitment of some kind. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And what, why, why is it that some sales reps feel that asking for business is one of the most difficult parts of making a sale? 
I'm one of those guys. I used to be like that. And so if you asked me, um, I mean, it's, it's very well studied. And the common, um, the, the common answer to that question is that they fear rejection. But the, actually, when you dig deeper and you look at the, the psychology of it all, it, the truth is it's not that. Um, salespeople aren't so much afraid of getting rejected as much as they're afraid of ruining the relationship with the customer. They don't want to destroy the relationship with the customer. What they want is they want you know long-lasting, lifelong relationships. You know right that that are that are long and profitable and excellent. That's what they're going for. And the and so if you ask me, hey, why do you think people are so nervous about it? Is because 99% of the of the different clothes that are being taught out there are manipulative and they all have these really funny names right and we could we could laugh at someday I could put up a big wall of shame that'll have all these ridiculous clothes in them. But um, since most of the clothes that are being taught out there are manipulative and actually damage trust because that, that's what the data shows is that they damage trust and, um, and we and when you read these clothes you instinctively go, whoa, I'm, I can never see myself saying that. I'll never say that, right? And since we, they can't think of anything to say that doesn't damage trust, they just don't say anything, <laughs> okay? And so that's why I would say where the resistance is coming from. And just to pile it on a little bit, there, um, it's an interesting statistic, but 50%, 50 to 90%, actually, 50 to 90% of all sales actually end without any commitment being asked for whatsoever, I mean, that is a mind-blowing statistic to me, right? Because here we are in sales. Our job is essentially to get commitments and more than half, like half is a low number. And it varies a little bit by industry, but it's, you know, in some industries, it's as high as 90%. And, and, and like I said, the reason for that is because there, no, there's no really facilitative, zero-pressure, non-confrontational way that's being taught out there. Right. And so, of course, that's what's in the perfect close and why we've done so well with the book. But um, I think all of these old school tactics are essentially the reason that people don't ask and they're, why they're apprehensive about it. Yeah, and I think with, with with almost all of them, they seem like a clever way to pin someone into a corner. But people know instinctively when they're being pinned into a corner. And, the, and the, I think a lot of the, 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 the response is kind of like, ah, clever, clever. But no, I mean, we have to figure out, you know, do I really get the value from this? Or do I, I, is this worth it? Or, you know, I got to look at the, the competitors. Like they, it does, you, you can't prematurely accelerate a, uh, a sales cycle with a ninja move, I think. <laughs> you can't, you can't. Let me pile on with that, right? I wish every manager in America could hear, or in the world actually could hear what, what I'm about to say, which is in my opinion, for the most part, you have about 10 to 15% control over the timing of a deal, right? You don't have very much control. And really the best thing you can do to speed up the sales cycle, the A number one thing you can do is just only target ideal clients. That's, the, that's gonna speed the process up better. It's when you try to sell to a non-ideal client and convince them to do something that maybe isn't perfect for them. That's when it starts to slow everything down, right? Um, but the, every manager in the world, and I'm guilty of this too, I've done it in my, in my past, has tried to use discounting as a way to accelerate sales, right? And the, the, the truth is, is that timing issues are not pricing issues. They're not the same thing, right? And so um, I, I just wish that they would learn that because what happens when you, um, when you try to use price to accelerate a sale, in most cases, it doesn't actually accelerate your sale. You're like, you don't even get the price. You don't get the deal when you were hoping to get it. And you've telegraphed a concession now. And so when it finally does come, you just end up giving away a ton of margin because you suggested that discount originally. So it's just a very dysfunctional. All it does is erode margins. That's all it does. Yeah. You know, I, I, I had some, some, some funny experiences on this and, and, and I've maybe told this story before on the podcast, I forget, but 
it's worth reiterating the uh, the when I the the year that the year that I was Google's top salesperson um, the the reason the real reason that I did so well well one of the one of the main reasons anyway the was that people were leaving me alone on timing because I because I had been doing really well and so my manager was kind of one of these guys that like if you perform he just like he would go hands off and if you're not performing he would be all over you and in general the team was underperforming and I was overperforming so he he didn't he didn't the, bother me on timing too much and it I gave and you I, more rope <laughs> yeah exactly so I, I was I had I had I had a lot more rope than and I, and I was able to kind of not because as soon as you brought him a deal, as soon as he knew about a deal and was like discussing, his immediate instinct was like to just drop pants on price. And uh, and this is kind of, it wasn't just him. It was kind of across the board. The, 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 organ, the organization would just drop their pants on price. And, uh, and, and, and this is in Google, not Google's main product. This is in their software division. And, and this, the whole, stri- the, 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 one of the reasons I sold so much was because I just wasn't dropping my pants on price. And so rather than collapsing the deal the quarter before, you know, I got the, I got the same deal for twice as much money a quarter later, but that kept building on itself and that I was just bringing in way, way more money. Not because I necessarily had that many more deals. I just, I was keeping the price high and everyone was like, you're a genius negotiator. And I'm just basically like, uh, not really, actually, I'm just, not telling management about these deals. So yeah, I just don't try to in. close before it's ready to close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. and that's it's, the secret, right? Is don't. Uh, it's and and the funny thing is, that, you know, the, the salespeople learn, or the good ones anyway, learn not to forecast the deal so right. close because what'll happen is, it won't even be your fault, right? You're doing great, but the company as a whole, right? I mean, I'm telling you, like clockwork, all these publicly traded companies, very close to the end of the quarter. We get the message from the executives. We're having a tough quarter. We need to pull out all the stops and do every conceivable legal thing possible to close deals. And so dragging that's when- every, Dragging every dollar. Forget about the future. Boom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the truth is, I understand why this is, right? Is because in, in a publicly traded world, you if you miss earnings by a bit, it might cost, the, it might, it might, you might lose millions of dollars in the net value of the company, right? Well, and, and, and the, the executives who are being paid in stock options, they, they, lose, they lose all their pay. <laughs> For the yes, year, of course, right? So right they, yeah. And even if it's a good year, they uh, a lot of them aren't going to be around next year, which is another, which is and same with the reps too. A lot towards the end of the year, I knew I would be losing these customers for next year. So it was like a, a bit. You would behave differently if you knew that. You, I would try to get like a feel for what my territory would be next year because if I was going to lose something, then I would I would drag it in and like you know drop pants and and uh, and let them let them have it for a way lower price. <laughs> if I knew they were going to take the deal away from me after that. But so, yeah, so that's why I ended up creating a very specialized version of the perfect close that figures out if a client can actually close by the end of the quarter without telegraphing any kind of a concession, because I, the first time this happened to me, I was brand new, brand new. First time I'd ever worked for a publicly traded company, a bright eyed, bushy tailed. In fact, this is old. So we had a whiteboard and on my whiteboard, I had all these deals on it. Like there were 10 and um, one of them was close to closing. And the other nine are somewhere in the middle of the process. And so I get the, we get the call, right? Chinese fire drill. We got to use everything we can to close deals. And so I was encouraged to offer discounts to all 10 deals to get into close by the end of the quarter. And every single one of those 10 deals knew that getting that discount was contingent on getting it by the end of the quarter. And if they didn't close by the end of the quarter, they were not going to see that discount, right? All right. So, so how do you think it turned out? 
So it, it, in my experience, most of them didn't take it because price wasn't the issue. The price wasn't the thing keeping them from purchasing. But then when you actually close the deal six months later, they wanted a cheaper price. Bingo. That is exactly what happened. Nine out of 10, literally only one deal closed at the end of the quarter. And that was the one that was already close to closing anyway. Right. But all and the other nine, they didn't say no, pack sand. Now we're not going to buy. They just decided to continue their process into the next quarter. Right. But I had to have this really uncomfortable conversation with all of them about whether or not they were going to get that discount they saw the previous quarter. And if I would resist, you could literally see it on their faces, right? You could see the erosion of goodwill on their faces. Mm -hmm. And so thank goodness goodness, at the end of the very next quarter, we had the same exact Chinese fire drill that we'd had the previous quarter, right? Where where (laughs) manager was in, you know, they used to call it at my company, they used to call it uh, weapons free. You are now weapons free. You can, you can, you guys can use this larger discount if you need to in order to close business, right? And so thankfully, I used that same discount to uh, offer them all. And so I ended up closing another seven out of those 10 for a total of eight out of 10, which is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. But that got me thinking, right? That got me thinking, think how dysfunctional this is, right? We offer a discount to try to get the timing we want, but then we don't actually get the timing that we want. But then, uh, and, and, and so then we get, but when it finally does come in, we get lower revenue. I get lower margins and lower commissions. And then we accidentally or inadvertently train the customer to seek end of quarter discounts. We've trained mm-hmm. them now. They know exactly when to ask for the discount because they know we're a publicly traded company. And so I'm like, man, oh man, there has got to be a better way to solve this problem, right? There's got to be a way to ask for the sale or ask for about the timing of the sale without telegraphing any kind of concession. And so there's a special version of the perfect close that does just that. And, and what's that? That sounds magical. Sure, it is. And so, and, um, and we haven't taught them the kindergarten version. So this is sort of the advanced version. But this version is, does it make sense for me to see if we can do something special for you if we can get everything wrapped up by the end of the quarter, right? Or whatever your time frame is, right? So let me say it again and so your audience can hear it. So mm-hmm. does it make sense for me to see if we can do something special for you if we can get everything wrapped up by the end of the quarter, in a month, whatever you, your deadline is, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what you're doing there is the does it make sense for me to see if we can do something special? You're not telling the something special is the possible concession, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you're not telegraphing what that is. In fact, you're not even saying that you've got one, right? right? You're saying you're going to have to go check and see. And the concession could be lots of things. I mean, it could be free training. It could be, you know. Yes, it, it, it could, could be maintenance. It could be starting maintenance later. It could be terms. It could be user group passes. Mm-hmm. It could be all kinds of stuff, right? So Absolutely. it's not always it's not always discounting that is the concession. But what I would say is the customer will answer you, and some like one or two things will happen. I can't even tell you the number of times I've heard this. Oh no, um, there's no way we can make a decision until our CEO's back after the holidays. Exactly. Good to know. Good to mm-hmm. know, right now. Now I'm not going to offer you any kind of a concession because if I did, I would just be wasting. I would just be losing margin, losing commissions, and all that. That's bad for the company. Bad for me. Right? And, and the thing that you said a few minutes ago is so important. I, I feel like no one understands this, and and it's so important. You don't control their timing all that much. Maybe ten to fifteen percent, a little bit. You you ha- you can bring things in a little early if you really push. And they'll come in anyway if you relax and let it just come in. Let it and and uh, and often it comes in at a higher price. Wait, and and, yep. and I, I can't tell. It's funny being you know because I, my whole career was in public companies, right? I was at IBM, which was very quarterly driven, um, and, and then I was at uh, Autonomy, public company, and then Google, public company, and um, 
and and now Badger obviously is private, right? It's, so uh, life is great, right? You don't have Sarbanes Oxley to deal with or any of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> right? All all the all those fun little little things, but you know the it, it's I, I can't tell you how many times I've I've been talking with a procurement person and they'll they'll try procurement is kind of like you know the salesperson's inverse right and so they'll they'll, they'll actually bring it up like oh well if we can get this done by the end of the quarter like you know do you think we have like a 20 percent discount and i'm like no you know the timing doesn't really matter for us i mean the, the price is fair and you know the price is what the price is like it's not you know it doesn't matter if you get it done two weeks early and and guess what it gets done if they could they're not even offering that if they couldn't get it done by the quarter and so it usually gets done by the end of the quarter anyway right like they yep. Yep. <laughs> and 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 you know it's just it's uh they've been trained by oracle and and everyone else that like quarters matter but really i mean for public companies or private companies it, it shouldn't matter as much as it does and we shouldn't do the monthly or annual uh, fire drill as you call it but we right. but 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 everybody does and i think it's uh it's it's uh but really you, you give up a lot to squeeze that 10, 15% earlier in the sales cycle. Oh, oh, hugely. So in terms of margin, it's a big difference. And yeah, you know, the funny thing, the root of the problem is, is at the beginning of the sales process, you need to do an adequate discovery so that you can identify what the our return on investment is for the client. If you do that, they will, they won't push back on the price because every month that they wait, they're actually losing money that they could be getting by having yeah. the solution in place. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but if you don't do an adequate ROI, if they have no idea what they're losing every month by indecision, then they'll, they'll wait for a long time to figure it out. Right. And so you actually That's have to facilitate that decision on their behalf. So important. And it can be a, it's, it can be pretty simple math. I mean, we um, we've got a, a pretty simple little spreadsheet that we give to every customer um, early in the sales cycle kind of allow and, and then it, it allows them to choose all the variables and stuff obviously and they can kind of but it's but it's built out and kind of shows well okay so this is this is how much you're you would gain by doing this and inverses inversely this is how much you would lose by by not doing it and uh you know then it's kind of on them to move move as quick as they can and frankly they're talking to you because they know that you were valuable in the first place right but it's great if they you you can give for us it's like the VP of sales that wants our product or the director of, you know, operations for sales or whatever. Um, and it's the CFO who's like, Oh, can we spend this money next, next quarter? Like how about next year? Like the, and, and so giving that, giving our actual sponsor, the, the, that weapon of, okay, here's how much we lose every month by not doing this, that they can walk down the hall and, and walk into the knock on the CFO's door and say, Hey, uh, check this out. This analysis, uh, I think we should probably move on this. Yeah. And, and the fool's gold that, that salespeople buy into is that they can sneak through the process without it happening, right? And then here's the thing. In the buyer's journey, the first stage is once they recognize they have a problem, then they try to figure out if the problem is big enough to do something about, right? What they're mm -hmm. doing is they're saying, is this really big enough that I got to do this? Or is, you know, or can I just skip this? Is it not, you know, the repercussions aren't bad enough that I have to do this. If they get past that without actually quantifying the problem, right? Your role as a salesperson during that stage is to help them quantify it. Right. But if you don't do that at the very end of the buyer's journey, there's this justify part. What happens is this is the moment where they're going like, holy crap, we're about to spend a million dollars on this. Is, is, it, is this really worth doing? They will hesitate and pause right there until the math is done. So mm -hmm. you, you're fooling yourself if you think they don't do the math. It's going to happen at some point. So you may as well do it at the beginning of the process instead of waiting for them to on their own to maybe like, like I can't even tell you the number of times clients will go silent, right? I hear this story, the client goes silent 
And what they're doing behind the scenes is they're trying to figure it out on their own if this is worth doing. If you'd done that up front, you wouldn't have to wait for them to figure it out on their own. You can facilitate that. Well, and similar to the way there's no Jedi mind tricks to close that, that, that actually work. There's also no Jedi mind trick to cut that corner of, of proving out your value and your ROI, right? Like even if you're, even if you, or manage to fool your sponsor or, the, or your sponsor isn't financially savvy enough to, to, to want to do that analysis and run that analysis, someone who controls the purse strings is going to insist upon it. And so that you can't cut that corner. You can't, you can't. And a, and a big challenge, by the way, that salespeople have, especially field people is, is they don't get access to that person, the CFO, whoever's going to make that decision. So I think what you would want to say to your, to your coach or whoever your sponsor is, you'd say, you know, is this CFO man, is he going to want to, is he going to want to take a look at that? Is that something he'll be interested in or she'll be interested? Right. And then, and they, and if they, if they say they don't know, or, you know, what's, what's this criteria that they're looking for? Then you can, that's at the moment you can say, well, does it make sense for me to spend 20 minutes with them so we can understand what their goals are for this project? And then you can build that. That's the moment that you get to access. So it solves two problems. You get access to the, to the key decision makers that you need to have. So you have all the stakeholders are, are, are buying you. And then second, they'll give you the criteria and that's where you'll be able to create this ROI that you, maybe you weren't doing because your coach wasn't, they're, they're not a money person. Absolutely. And I've heard you talk about this before. What, why, why is there a negative correlation between the number of times that you ask for a sale and your close rate? Why, why do you damage your close rate by asking for a sale too much? Which is, which is against the, the, the classic, but you know, uh, probably not not held in high esteem uh, wisdom of ABC always be closing. Yes, right. Well, thanks to thanks to Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, we all know always be closing, right? The ABCs of sales. But that this is actually one of the myths that uh, Neil Rackham tested, and what he found is that past the first quest, so it actually does increase your chance of closing if you ask something. Hey, newsflash, right? Of course it does, right? But uh, once you start asking more and more and more, what happens is the percentage of the chance that you are going to close that deal continues to go down and down and down. So you don't want to keep badgering the customer. There's actually a negative correlation. So if you ask me why that was, he didn't really explore why that is, but I would just tell you that once the principle I, I call it is in, intent matters more than technique, okay? A couple things happen when you first meet a person, any person. Uh, the first thing is you look at their intention. What is this person trying to do? Are they trying to help me or are they trying to hurt me, right? And then after you've figured that out, literally, this all happens in seconds. Then they judge your competence. They say, is this person capable of doing whatever they intend to do, right? So if they're trying to help me, are they really capable of helping me, right? Or maybe, you know, if this person's trying to hurt me, are they, are they, is this person formidable? Can they really, you know, hurt me? And, um, and all this happens in seconds, but what um, the mistake that salespeople make classically is they play very heavily into competence. They say, if I can just prove that I'm the most competent, that I have the best solution, that I will win. And that is a mistake because what all the social science shows is that decisions about intention and warmth are primary. They happen first, and they all they also carry more weight. They could, so and so applied to this situation. What we're trying to say is, if the customer can tell that you're doing it for yourself and you're not doing it for them, then suddenly that you you've lost their trust, and when you lose trust, they stop 
giving information to you. They start to withhold it. And now the whole selling process has become dysfunctional because we don't, we don't prescribe without making a diagnosis, right? So we, you know, diagnosis without or a prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, right? That's the saying. And, um, and so I think when you ask over and over and over again, what you're really saying to the customer is, I just want your money. I don't really care about you. I don't care about your goals. I don't care about achieving what you're trying to achieve. I just care about getting a sale. And so that's, that's me interpreting the data but what the data clearly shows that past the first time you're going to get a you're going to get a negative correlation. So don't keep pestering them. Yeah, uh, ma makes a ton of sense. And what and what about pestering them with information? How how do you how do you ensure that you're not overwhelming a prospect uh, with information? How do you how do you maintain that balance? So um, we could have a whole conversation about this, but it's really about discovery. Okay. Now every customer, especially in a complex sales like you and I have done, right, is um, there are lots of issues that the customer might be trying to solve, right? Lots of goals that they might be trying to solve. And so you have to do a discovery and understand what they are. And I'll give you a really brief framework that uh, this isn't printed anywhere. So you just have to listen, but you'll, you'll ask them, all right, well, what are you trying to do? What are your goals or what are your issues that you're trying to uh, deal with, right? And then they're gonna give you some and you just keep saying, what else, what else, what else until they run out of gas, okay? What I can tell you, I've done it a jillion times. You're gonna end up with approximately six. Okay. You might get a little more, sometimes a little less, but you'll get somewhere around six. And then you're going to ask them to prioritize them. And the, the, the hard thing for a salesperson during this stage is they, as soon as they say the first issue, they're going to say, I want to, I can solve that for you. And then they'll never get the other five. Okay. Because they're so busy solving issue number one, but it might be number five or number six. It turns out to be the one that carries all the weight. And this is the thing, even if they have a list of a dozen, I promise you, most likely there are two main issues that are driving the entire sale. They carry more weight than all the other issues combined. And so you need to be patient enough. Don't stop, don't sell. Wait and just listen until you get out the entire list and then they tell you what's most important. Once you've done that, you'll know the top two. Guess what, guys? Now we don't have to spray every piece of information about our system out there right, or our solution out there hoping that one of them is going to hit all these things. We know the key two. And so you just start with the biggest one, right? And then you go to the second one. Even better, if it's if it's a really complex sale, you won't sell in the same meeting. You'll actually come back later, you know, as a second time to present how you're going to solve the problem. And you're going to say, hey, this is what we heard when we were together. You told us you had these issues and this was the biggest one. By the way, this is the moment where you can prep your ROI. You can say, well, how do you measure that problem, right? Uh, what do you measure? What's the metrics you use? Okay, well, what's that metric now? What do you want it to be? What's the difference between the two? What's the monetary difference between the two? Oh, wow. It sounds like this would be like, a, you know, $100,000 a year for you, right? Um, does that seem right to you? And then, oh, what would that be over five years? So you can, with each issue, create an ROI for each issue using those five golden questions I just mentioned. What's, you know, how do you measure it? What's, what's the value of it now? What do you want it to be? What's the value of the difference? And what's the value over time? Those five questions will give you an ROI on every single issue that you have. And two are all you need to really win. Right. And, but you won't know the two unless you're patient enough to let the customer say it. Right. And so the way you keep them from, from overwhelming them with information is just be very surgical. Right. If you, you, there, I mean, if you're dealing with a very complex system, you don't have enough time to present the entire system to them. You, there's, it's not possible. Like I worked with companies in the healthcare space where there was no single individual that knew everything about the systems anyway. I mean, no, no one person knew everything. It's impossible, right? So what are the odds you're going to be able to show everything to the customer? It's not possible, 
And what they do is they take a small sliver of their experience with you and they extrapolate that into what they think their experience with you and your company is going to be as a whole, right? So you got to make sure that one sliver is a very good sample, right? And the way you do that is you make sure that you're very, very relevant by listening really good up front. Yeah, no, I, I love what you're saying here. And, and there's so many misconceptions of, about closing. What, what are some of the lessons that salespeople can learn from these misconceptions? I guess first, what are the misconceptions? And then what do, what do we learn from these misconceptions? Oh, well, we'll always be closing is one of those misconceptions. Um, there's also uh, a misconception that, that, that these little closing tactics work. I mean, people might be surprised that Neil Rackham tested that too. And the people that believe in them are actually, they actually perform 21% worse than those who don't believe in them, right? So that's kind of funny. Um, the, the, probably the misconception that I fell for is that, um, the, that these closing gambits or these tactics that work on small sales also work on big sales. But actually, Neil Rackham tested that as well. And the truth is, small sales are very, very different than big sales. I'll give you a crazy example. When I, when I first got into sales, the reason I wrote the book is because I was struggling, right? And I didn't have any mentors to look to. So I just started reading every book in the world on this and trying to figure it out. I faced up and said, all right, I got a closing problem. I'm going to go figure it out. And then I actually tried to use all these ridiculous closes that are out there in the world. And I bombed at so many of these. So I can tell you, and I'll give you a really bad example, right? We're, in a, we're struggling as a company. Um, I had been drafted into sales. That's a totally different story, but I'm with a very big customer that's already using our software and they, and then we were trying to sell them on a service part of this whole thing, right? An outsourced part of it. And so I'm having, I'm having dinner with a CEO and a, a COO. Okay. And I had just read about the alternate choice close. Okay. So I was going to try this close on these guys, right? Everything's good. They're telling me about their issues, right? We're already in the catbird seat because they already use our software, right? And I'm telling about our software. And then at the right moment, right? You're timing it, right? Oh, this is, this must be the right moment. I say, oh, do you want solution, you know, A or B? And of course, if you don't know, that's called the alternate choice close because either way they're picking me, right? Well, this, this CEO, it was like I had poisoned his food or something because he was thunderstruck. He just pushed away from the table and he looked at me in the eye and he said, if you think that just because we have your software that we're going to buy this, this service from you, you are dead wrong. And then he said, I, I am going to look at three different vendors. Though he said three, it was almost like he was spitting at me. Yeah. I, I'm going to look at three different vendors and we're going to, because we got a lot riding on this, right? This is what and I'm like, oh my gosh, did that backfire, right? And you know what? They didn't buy it from us. They didn't. Just to teach me a lesson, that guy picked a totally different vendor, which ended up using our software to solve their problem. And um, and so, I, and that happened at a really tough time in my life where I was really needing that commission. And so I learned the alternate choice works really great on small things, like whether or not you're going to get a large or medium drink. Totally works, right? <laughs> but when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars, it absolutely does not work and it will backfire on you because they feel like they're being manipulated. And when you send a message that you're, you're manipulating the customer, then boom, trust is destroyed. Yeah, right? that's that's the key is you can just train wreck trust with something like that. And and sophisticated buyers, I, I feel like they see through it in two seconds. Like if you're like, you know, it's it just, it's a, it, it it doesn't work in, in real situations with real people unless, but it does work if like, uh, you know, at the, at the enterprise rental car counter, when they're like, which, which one of our insurances do you want? This one or this one? You're like, none of them. I have car insurance. Thank Get you. Out of here. Yeah, I'm covered. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks though. Uh, well, but so, so that doesn't work, but how would you suggest salespeople transition from the, the gaining trust stage 
into closing? What, how, how do you think about that transition? Do you want my, my well, the first thing, if you, if, if, if we're sharing the close questions at some point to your audience, the, the perfect close is a timing question. So because it's a timing question, you can't get the timing wrong. Okay, it's it is a timing question, right? So when we get to, to saying what the what the what those closes are, um, you'll, you'll it'll make sense to you. But my favorite way of addressing what you just asked is just well, now, now's a now's a fine a, a fine time to talk about them. Let, let's talk about the uh, sure you know the so, the different closing techniques for different types of prospects and 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 what the different closes are. Sure, there's two key questions, right? And, and maybe just to make your audience feel excited about this. It, it, this is hands down the best closing approach there is, as proven by science. It's not James saying it this way, although I discovered it long before Gong.io studied it. There's a company called Gong.io. They're a call analytics company, and they, they, they basically run in outbound call centers, and they analyzed over a million calls trying to get the answer to this question. What is the best closing approach? And what they determine is that the perfect close, which is what I'm about to share with you, is hands down the best approach that there is, and that the top performers actually are using it about three times an hour which should tell you that it doesn't get old the more that you use it, okay? So that little background to give you faith in what I'm about to say is there's just two questions. They're zero pressure, you know, and non-confrontational and they're about 95% effective, okay? And um, maybe I should say this, before you, before I tell you the questions, you, whenever, whenever you go into a sales encounter, you should kind of have an idea of what you're hoping to get out of the meeting, okay? <laughs> and what you wanna have is an ideal advance, which is the best possible outcome. And then you wanna have a couple of alternative advances, which is sort of a backup plan, just in case the ideal advance um, doesn't, doesn't um, prove realistic for some reason. And the reason you wanna do that, as this is especially true in a complex sale, is that what Neil Rackham discovered is that nine out of 10 sales encounters don't end up with a win or lose. That's not what happens. What happens in nine out of 10 sales interactions, you get an advance, which we're talking about now, where the sale moves forward in a little way, or you get what he called a continuation, which is a situation where there's actually no progress is made at all, but the deal doesn't die either. And that's why your pipeline's all bloated is because you have a bunch of deals that are just have continuations, okay? All right, so you've got an ideal advance, best possible outcome, couple of backups. With that, you're gonna use the, the I'm gonna teach the kindergarten version first. And the, the first question is, does it make sense for us to X? Where X is your ideal advance, right? So if I, maybe I'm a consulting firm, I say, hey, you know, does it make sense for us to schedule an assessment? to see what our best options are. In that example, the assessment is the X, okay? There's only two things they're gonna say. They're gonna say yes, or they're gonna say no. If they say yes, great. You didn't need both questions. You got, you got it with just one question, okay? If they say no, then the basic kindergarten version of the second question is you throw the ball back to the customer and say, okay, well, what do you think is a good next step? And what will happen in 90% of cases is the customer will actually suggest a very logical next step for where they're at in their buying process. Okay. It's when you try to push them faster than they're ready for it. That's when it starts to feel like manipulation. So doing it this way, again, it's non-confrontational and it paces it at the rate the customer is ready to go. So th those are the two basic questions. And um, now, how do you transition to that, right? That was your question that triggered this whole conversation, right? And so my favorite way of transitioning to those two questions, oh, oh let's, let's, let's dive into the, the psychology of this for a second. Does it make sense? But you, when you first teach this to people, they're all worried about what, what if they say no to that first question? That's what they're worried about, okay? But think about it. If they say no to, you know, does it make sense for us to schedule an assessment? If they say no, what have they said no to really? Did they say, I'm not going to take your assessment? No, because we didn't ask them to. We asked them if the timing was right, right? Does it make sense? And uh, did they say, no, I'm not going to buy your stuff? No, because we didn't ask them to buy anything. At its core, does it make sense is a timing question. And in fact, you can even use it that way. If you say, hey, is the timing right for us to do this thing? 
that is perfectly acceptable variation, okay? But because you're just asking the timing of it, you're never gonna get the timing wrong. They're just telling you whether the timing is ready for them. That's what the first question is, okay? Now, um, my favorite way to introduce those questions though is just to create an, a, a, an agenda. That is my favorite thing. And even if it's just a half pager, maybe you're in a simple sale and, uh, and you're gonna talk to them about vinyl fencing or something like that, it still works right? Half page. And then at the, somewhere at the bottom of your agenda, it's going to call action items and next steps. You're going to put that as a bullet on there, right? And that that's the moment where you're going to use this perfect close questions that I just taught you, right? So, um, but in, in a more complex cell, you might have several different things you got to cover during your meeting. You know, sometimes I've been in all day meetings where the agendas are quite long. We're still going to have this thing at the bottom of the agenda that says action items and next steps. And because everyone's been following the agenda the whole time, when we get to that, that's when we're going to use our questions and that's, we're going to ask for our ideal advance. If it turns out that the ideal advance isn't realistic for some reason, you can do something called the suggestion. Okay. And, and, and then you're going to use one of the alternates. We fall back. And instead of saying, what do you think is a good next step? We actually say something more like, well, you know, other clients at this stage will sometimes do this other thing. Does it make sense for us to do that? And the other thing is one of the other advances that you prepared. And what that makes uh, happen is we're either getting the close like we were looking for, or we're moving the sale forward in a little way every single time we meet with the customer. And so the sale's always progressing, not necessarily at the speed we'd like, but at the, at the speed that the customer is ready for. And this lets us do that. So there, was that, uh, was that an okay way of answering? We, we went off field a little bit on that. But. No, no, this is, this is exactly what I wanted to do was, was really cover your take on how to do this. And, 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 and it's almost worth pausing and rewinding that last two minutes and just and, and listening to it again with, through the lens of, okay, so how would I, how would I shape these, these concept questions to my particular business? And, you know, this isn't just for sales situations. This is kind of for any team interactions with two between different groups of humans, right? Like so, so many times I feel like things don't get done because people don't ask at the end. Okay. So is it, is now the right time for us to do this next thing? And, and, uh, or, you know, what are the next steps and who's, who's in charge of the next steps? Bingo. Uh, you know, getting getting those questions out and asking that at the end of a meeting, if whether it's with an employee or or with your mom, like it's, yeah. it's, uh, or your spouse. Hey, does it make sense for us to go out tonight? Right. I mean, you know, it's very simple. You can use it to almost anything. And it's, yeah, you hear how non-confrontational is. There's no pressure. There's zero pressure. And so think about that. Will you buy my stuff? If they say no, man, you are emotionally a dead bottom, right? You're at rock bottom. But if I just say, does it make sense for us to do this? And they say no. Then you go, oh, okay. Well, what do you think is the next step, right? Or, you know, it, we were emotionally on so much higher ground because all you really did is ask, is the time right for you to do this, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really abdicating the decision-making to the customer where it should be, guys, because you really don't have as much control as you think you have. Right. Well, and, 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 and that goes for, for life too, but you know, it, it's, you, you, it's, I, I think a, a thing people don't understand about sales is it's, it's really hard to make people do things. You have to show them the path and illuminate that path and show them why it's the right path. But then they, they walk on that. Path. That's right. Control and his illusion, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, um, well, the next section is sales in 60 seconds, quick questions, quick answers. Sure. Um, first question, why, why should sales reps not use price in order to accelerate a sale? Well, we talked about that already. And that's because mm -hmm. timing issues are not pricing issues. They're totally different things. 
Yeah. And do you, do you think salespeople should set the pace of the sale or should the customer set the pace? We really, we're, we did a good job in this conversation. Yeah. You want to move forward at the pace, of the customer. And um, I guess this is the 60 second version. So I don't want to give you a long answer, but I've, I've, I've managed people whose forecasts are awful because in their mind, the, the next step was to close. Right. So if they gave a presentation then, and so they would forecast it that way. Right. Because the next step on the sales process side is closing, but the customer might have a dozen other processes on their side, on the buying side. And so this guy was the world's worst forecaster because he was forecasting every deal like it was going to close when in reality there was tons of things that had to happen on the customer side. So it's important to remember the customer's buying cycle is different than the sales cycle. Wait, we're going to have to talk to your legal team? Oh, <laughs> what? Yeah, that just introduced a lot of time. Does that take time? <laughs> I, I... <laughs> Uh, what, what is the process that you advise salespeople to do when they're pre-call planning? So I've got three magic questions that I recommend that salespeople use. And those three questions are this. And, and so regardless of your sale, you should ask yourself these three questions before you go in. Why should this client see me? Okay. And that speaks to your value proposition. Why should they even spend a minute with you? What value can you bring? You should have at least an idea. Okay. Um, what do I want the client to do? Well, that speaks to the ideal advance that we just talked about. Now, you know what you're going to ask for when we say, does it make sense for us to X? You'll know that. And the last, which is a little less um, common knowledge is how can I add value on this, um, on this encounter? And the reason you should be asking yourself that guys is because the customers for the most part, don't need you just to disseminate information. They can get that off the internet. They don't need you for that, okay? So we need to make the buying experience itself inherently valuable in some way, in some way. Otherwise, they don't need you. What, what, what good are you? And so a common complaint I hear is, oh, I gave them the proposal and I didn't. I, they went silent on me after I sent them a proposal. Well, let me tell you why that happens. It's because you were not adding value throughout the process and they think that the last useful piece of information that you had was the price. And once you gave it to them, then now they don't need you anymore. But if you were adding value to every step along the way, they would ask you, oh, what's the best way to implement this? What is, there's all kinds of issues that they have to deal with on their side, but you have to be adding value to your um, meeting. And Huthway and Associates in the UK actually proved that if you add a um, unanticipated solution or you reveal a unrecognized problem or an unseen opportunity, one of those three things, then it actually adds a premium to customers value your solution even more. And so the, the common denominator of those three things is unexpected. And that's why I say, how can I provide some unexpected value on this encounter? Because when you do, they're like, wow, I'm glad I went to that meeting. I learned a new thing, right? I, my life is better because of that. And so if you just take a little bit of time before you go and meet with the customer and answer those three questions, your, your, your uh, sales encounters will be probably 10,000 times better than what they've been. Yeah, I, I always, I, I remember when I, I would sit in the car before going into a meeting and I would try to be, you know, at least a few minutes early always, you know, cause I didn't want to be late up. And so I would, I would always have a couple minutes in the car and one, one, I would always try to run through my mind. Um, what, what is the goal of this meeting? And, I, and it, 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 that jived well with your, your second thing there. What, what do I want them to do? What is my, what is my goal? Uh, I, I, I think that's a really nice framework. In, in, in your opinion, what is the most challenging part about closing a sale? Well, it shouldn't be true, but you need to get off yourself and the solution. Stop, stop thinking about what's in it for you and, and just think about it, uh, about what the customer's trying to do. So I say it this way, intent matters more than technique does. Okay. So if, if you're um, just get off of your solution for a second and think, all right, how can I help this customer achieve their goal? And guys, sometimes that'll include you and sometimes it won't. 
okay? But um, if you walk into the solution, into the situation doing that, what will happen is just, there's a lot of nonverbal signals that you send with your voice, with, they're called microtels. There's also this thing called mirror neurons. And there's a bunch of nonverbal communication that you're sending about your intentions that you can't control. And so if you, if you go into the meeting thinking about you and how you can sell this, you're sending the wrong message, guys. I'll, I'll give you a ridiculous example of this. I had a, um, I was managing a sales guy. And, uh, one of our clients calls me up and says, don't ever send that guy back here again. He has commission breath. Okay. And that <laughs> captures that word. It captures exactly what we're trying to not do is we want to go into there thinking, Hey, tabula asa, blank slate. What can I do to help these guys? And that might even be recommending a competitor. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if they detect that you are genuinely trying to help them, I'm telling you, they'll give you every chance to swing at the plate. You could screw your proposal up three ways from Thursday and they will still come back and say, Hey, we really loved what you're doing here, but the, you know, the proposal looks wrong to us, right? They'll, they'll come back to you if they trust you, but if they don't trust you, I'm in most cases, the show's off, right? If they, if you have commission breath, they're like, ah, we're done with these guys. Right. And they'll just eliminate you. Yeah. Empathy, 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 the way, the way you got to see things from your, your customer's perspective. If you want to build that trust, if you want to, if you want to advance a sale, that's empathy is key. Yep. Um, what, what would you say are some effective daily routines that you find helpful for salespeople to become more successful? So at some point in your life, you might be a, a really awesome salesperson. Like, uh, like you would look at me right now and you would probably say, oh, James has been a fitness guy and he's, he's like uh, been that way his whole life. But I actually used to weigh about 250 pounds. And, and, and so um, I'm very different now. And so you need to take the discipline that you have around selling and apply it to a couple of other things in your life. And one of those things is you need to be healthy. If you don't have any energy, guys, then you're not going to be able to go out and, and use that energy to sell more. Right. You'll you'll run out of gas at two o'clock in the afternoon. And so you're not you're you're cheating yourself. So you need to spend a little bit of time. So get enough sleep. OK, I used to think it was cool. I'd say, hey, look at look how much more life I'm getting by um, by you know, only having five hours of sleep. Well, that will backfire on you in a super, super big way. Right. The data shows you're going to get diabetes and a bunch of other really bad stuff happens when you don't get enough sleep. So just plan your life around that. Right. Um, so uh, you need to. You, so you got to watch what you eat. You got to be exercising and you, and you need to get enough sleep. And so that's that's a morning routine for me. Right. Is to do those things. And then second is you need to spend a little time meditating, praying, whatever it is that you do. But you want to be a little bit um, mindful about uh, what you want to happen in your day. Okay, so just little, put a little piece in there. But what that, that'll remind you to do things. Like if you haven't set goals for yourself, you think, why are you doing this? Why do you want to succeed? Like, let's say you, if I ask most salespeople that, they'll say, I want to earn a lot of money. Okay, but uh, the real key question is, well, all right, well, let's say you have a lot of money. What are you going to do with that? Right? And then they're going to say, oh, well, uh, maybe I'm going to buy a new car. Maybe I'm going to buy an RV. Well, why do you want an RV? Well, then my family and I could go places. Oh, why do you want to go places with your family? And if, and if I keep drilling down, this will land in a very cool place, okay? But if you never take the time to, to put your goals out and ask yourself why you want all this, I promise you will end a place that you'll end up with not just temporary motivation, but you'll end up with lifelong lasting motivation because the things you really are tying your job to and why you're doing stuff is to, to really meaningful things right? To really meaningful things. So, um, so I would say that's a, a little bit about the mindfulness of it. And then um, I'm, uh, I'm a big advocate of training. So you should spend some time every day 
right? Probably 30 minutes to an hour every day, sharpening the ax and making yourself better than you were before. And for me, that means reading or listening to audiobooks or podcasts like this one. Um, but there's a lots of different channels where you can get this information. And most, a lot of it's free, actually. Right. Right. So if you're driving back and forth to work, listening to this podcast is a great way of sharpening the axe. So those are, you know, maybe four things I could go on. Uh, my day is pretty structured, but, you know, probably by 10 o'clock, I've done more in my day than a lot of folks get done in the entire day just because I have a, a structure to it. But it did take and, and the way I would, I would frame it to your listeners is this. I already know you got a lot of discipline around selling. I know you got it. Right. So now just turn those guns onto these other areas right? Put a little more structure. You can be, you can be just as awesome at, um, you know, at, at your health as you are at selling, right? You can be just as awesome at um, your mindfulness and the balance that you have in your life as that as well, right? These are all things you just got to turn your, and um, maybe to give them a little hope. Um, there's common knowledge out there that says in 21 days, you've made a habit, but the, the, there's new data that says that's wrong. It's not really 21 days. It's actually 60 days. It's about 60 days, but the good news is uh, you use willpower for 60 days. At the end of the 60 days, you've created a habit. And when your habit's created, you get your willpower back. And so now you're free to reallocate that willpower to a new habit. And so if you do it this way, you, you got the, the 60 days sucks, right? It does suck. But and so it's, it's, it's horrible at the beginning. It's kind of messy in the middle, but it's beautiful at the end when it's a habit. And then you just turn it on to a new habit and you just keep adding habits and keep adding habits. And you'll become a superpower if you keep doing that. Very cool. Um, yeah, I used to make a list of uh, all the things that you know I wanted to accomplish, and kind of along those lines, like eat healthy, don't eat sugar, like exercise every day, stuff, whatever the thing was that I wanted to, whatever the habit was that I wanted to build at the time, and uh, and I would do it for thirty days, and it was, and it was just kind of ingrained. After thirty, and I could move on to the next thing. So I'd be like, okay, this thirty days, I'm going to focus on this. Next thirty days, I'm going to keep that, but move to this. Um, and that was, uh, I, I did that with a buddy and that was pretty, uh, pretty effective. Um, so, uh, so what, what, as an actionable takeaway, what, what should the, the field salespeople that are listening today do as a first step towards becoming better non-confrontational sellers? You, you know what? Um, here's a way to think about this, okay? About selling it as a whole, okay? When anybody is trying to do a new thing, okay? A, a new challenge. We all want to have a coach that would help us move forward at our own pace, right? Um, and the key is just to give a little thought, you know, to what the steps are, right? And then, and then you can help coach your client, right? And we're not always going to know what the exact pace is that the client wants to take, but that preparation that we do helps us, you know, adequately coach them. So, and the point of this is that the clients are engaging us precisely because they're trying to make some kind of positive change. If they could get there without you guys, they wouldn't even be talking to you. Okay, so they're expecting us to be the coach, right? Um, and it, so it, that makes selling more um, than just advancing the sale or closing deals, right? I mean, it, it, what they're looking for is someone to help them through each little commitment it takes to achieve their goal. And so that makes it about leadership, right? That's really what it is. Or, and, and my challenge is to salespeople is we can do a lot better job of coaching and facilitating and the leadership than we're doing today. Right. That's my challenge. Be a better coach, be a better problem solver, be a better teacher, because what selling really is, is not about manipulation. It's not about persuasion. 
It's about serving. It's about helping them achieve their goal. And if you help them achieve their goal, guys, you'll make more money than you could ever believe. And then those customers, because they know you tried, you helped them achieve the goal, they'll recommend other customers to you. And instead of you spending so much time on prospecting, outbound prospecting, you'll be getting referrals. It is a way more beneficial way because the sales cycles are slower and the deal sizes are larger and there's no competition. I mean, you'll get to this point where you hit critical mass, where the clients are feeding you so much business, you won't even have time to get the, the ones that are coming in from the web from your company. It's a beautiful place to be. But the key, every great salesperson I've ever met has this moment, this epiphany in their life where this light switches on and say, if I just help the customer get what they really want, I'll get everything that I want, right? And there's a famous Ziegler quote to that effect. And I, I can, I'm, I'm, I'm testimony, right, to you that that is the case. If you just think about what they, you know, to help them get what they want, you'll get everything you want. You, you won't have to worry about money and revenue and prospecting because they'll do all that stuff for you. But the key starts with how you see what the sell is. If you go into it with a commission breath, it's going to backfire on you. But if you go in serving, then it's going to, everything was going to end up all right. Just fantastic advice. Um, well, I'm going to attempt to summarize all the things you've taught us because of all the people that are listening to this in their cars. Um, so James follows Neil Rackham's belief that closing is any situation when you ask a client for a commitment. James shared that salespeople only have about 10 to 15% control over the timing of the close meaning a discount won't necessarily help close a deal or move the needle that much. Instead of offering a discount, you can ask, does it make something, does it make sense to see if we can do something special for you? If we can get everything wrapped up by the end of the quarter. And, and that's a, a really good way to, to kind of test the waters on, uh, on, on, on if you can, if you have much control over the time or if it's even potential to get, get it done during the quarter. Next, uh, you, you need to do an adequate discovery for every prospect and, and show them their ROI early in the buying cycle. Quantify the problems that your prospect wants to close the deal on their side too. Show them how much they would gain every month or show how, by, by taking an action with you or Conversely, show them how much they would lose every month by not taking action. During your discovery, ask prospects about their goals and issues and, and keep asking, what else? What else? What else? And, until you hear every one of their goals and issues in, in the area that you're working with. And then ask your customer to, to, to prioritize these goals and, and these issues so that you know where you should be most focused on, and then you can help calculate their, their value that they're going to get from your solution or, or their ROI. So, and, and this is one of my favorite parts. James, James took us through the perfect close, which includes these steps. So first, before you go into a meeting, you should have a plan for the outcome of the meeting. And based on this outcome, ask a question to ask your questions to move the deal along, right? So, so with, with the, the outcome that you're looking for in mind, you can ask, so uh, does it make sense for us to do X? And, and, and what is X in this case, you know, may, maybe uh, it's whatever the outcome that you're looking for, right? So if you're a consultant, maybe X is, does it make sense for us to schedule an assessment? And if the prospect says no, then you can ask, okay, what do you think the next best 
step would be. Um, I, I think that's that's a really powerful way to to move a move a close along, um, and, and and really I think something we can all learn from here. Um, that he also mentioned you could say, well, you know, if if they if they if they don't really don't know what the next best step is, um, you can also kind of say, oh, well, you know, here's something that has made sense for for other other folks that are kind of at your same stage that I've seen in the past would 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 that make sense here um so really some some great ways to you know in a transparent way have a have a conversation with the customer and, and actually move the deal forward uh finally when when you're pre-call planning ask yourself these three questions why should this client see me what do I want the client to do and how can I add value? Um, this has been really powerful, James. How, how can our listeners read more about your work? Where can they reach out to you? I got to tell you, you have a gift for remembering all the stuff we talked about. <laughs> well done. Well done. Yeah, no, the best way to get uh, in touch with me or to see my material is to go to the website. And the website is puremuir.com. People have a hard time saying my last name for some reason. So it's P-U-R-E-M-U-I-R. Dot com. And there is actually a bundle there that they can download. I used to have these 12 different downloads that was taken. So I've just stuck it all in one giant file now that you can download the whole thing. But actually all the models we talked about here um, and actually more than we talked about here are in that. Uh, there's a, a special report called the seven deadly myths of closing, which we covered, I think, two or three of those on this, but it actually has the references to all the scientific studies that show, hey, that doesn't work anymore, right? And you can show that to your boss or whoever needs to see it. Um, but anyway, and there's a bunch of other things. There's meeting planners, there's mind maps, there's all kinds of stuff on there. So that's the that's probably the best way to go. And then that'll put you on my mail list, and then you can see when I got new stuff. If you like, if you like, you're welcome to contact me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm active on Twitter. I'm active on Facebook. Even if you want to see my personal stuff, it's your call. Right. Uh, as long as, if you want to see my personal stuff, you can connect with me on Facebook. That's fine. But um, all those are great channels uh, to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll put all that in the show notes here. This has been a great episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If you work in field sales, you'll love Badger Maps. Check it out. It's the number one route planner. Helps you sell twenty percent more, drive twenty percent less. You can get a free trial at BadgerMapping.com. If anyone can think of any other sales reps that would benefit from learning the skills that James has taught us today about closing, uh, definitely forward this episode along to them and, and take care until next time, everybody. Bye.